Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, guys. I know uh, we're now in February. January has passed, and some of us have already failed at our resolutions. But maybe it's not just failing. It's just temporarily halting, and and we just need to learn how to start again. Speaking of which, we've got a new course that I've mentioned before on the uh, on the pod, but I just want to remind you, a brand new course up on the 10% Happier app, all about helping you make and break habits uh, in a sane, shame-free way. It features two recent guests on the pod, Kelly McGonigal and Alexis Santos. If you're not a subscriber to the pod, you can get a uh, seven-day free trial Go download it. Check it out. Uh, if you want to take a look directly at the course, you can go to 10percent.com slash habits. Let's get into the show this week. This is a really good one. I had a lot of fun interviewing uh, Sonia. Sonia Leobimersky, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Sonia, is a uh, PhD, a distinguished professor and vice chair of psychology at the University of California, Riverside. She's originally from Russia. She then came over here to the States where she got degrees from Harvard and Stanford and has spent her life studying happiness and coming up with ingenious ways to figure out what makes us happy, what makes us unhappy. She's written a pair of books, The How of Happiness and The Myths of Happiness. And we talk a lot about the various skills that can make us thrive and uh, the various bad habits where we wither. And I think I think we can whittle down uh, at least one of her core ideas to the habit to, to the idea that uh, happiness is a habit. It, it does take work. So we talk about one of the core areas where where she's really excited these days in terms of a, a source of happiness for human beings, which is social connection, extroversion versus introversion. Uh, we talk about talking to people on elevators, uh, how we can use social media the counterintuitive benefits in this day and age of actually seeing your friends face to face. We talk about how social comparison is so insidious and dangerous. And we talk about how the pursuit of happiness can actually, notwithstanding her argument that it does take work, the pursuit of happiness, she says, can also backfire in really interesting ways. One quick note before we start, she mentions all of these uh, research projects and resources throughout the course of this interview. And if you're really interested in them and don't have a pen, don't freak out. You can find them all uh, in our show notes at 10percent.com slash podcast. So here we go. Here's Sonia Liubomirsky. Great to meet you. Great to meet you. Well, I'm already impressed with you because the first thing you told me before we started rolling is that you're tired today because you went to an all night party on Saturday night. So you're you're keeping you know you're close to my age. I'm in my late forties. We don't have to name your age, but the fact that you did that is I I respect it. Yeah, you know, um, I think life is short, and I study happiness, and I'm a happy person, and I like to connect with people and have fun and dance all night. So why not? I mean, I wouldn't do it every day, but, you know, once in a while, it's really fun. So it jibes the decision to do something like go to an all-night party, which is not a normal thing for you. I know this because you told me. It, it is not disconnected from your research. Yeah, not at all. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's about friends and, you know, actually dancing is really, it's it's energy, right? And so actually happiness, a lot of it is about energy, Um and connecting with people, actually, my my new research interest is about 
connection and sort of how to connect more with other people in our daily lives. It could be with your barista or a stranger on the subway or your friend or your husband. Um, and I really think that connection is what makes life worth living. And so you might connect at a party, you might connect, you know, in a coffee shop. Um, and no matter how you do it, um, it's, I think it really makes your life richer and it makes you a happier person. Well, let's go with that since we're on it. Why, why connection and what are you learning in your research? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just beginning, really. I mean, I've been doing research on happiness for now 30 years. I actually just celebrated my 30th anniversary uh, of starting doing this research. Um, and a lot of it has been on how to, how to make people happier. You know, what can we do to become happier? And so my lab does uh, what I call happiness interventions. And they're basically clinical trials um, or like clinical trials where we prompt one group of people to practice a certain ha- strategy like express gratitude three times a week or do acts of kindness uh, every week for a month. Um, and then we measure their happiness. And then we have a control group. We have, we have various comparison groups. Um, and I, I, I started thinking that a lot of what we're trying to do to make people happier is about connection. So when we get people to express gratitude, they end up really feeling more connected to the people that they are expressing gratitude to because it's almost always about other people. I mean, sometimes it might be about your health or your opportunities in life, but usually when people express gratitude or think about gratitude, they're thinking about the people in their lives. Um, and then we do a lot of studies uh, on acts of kindness or pro-social behavior, as it's called in the psychology literature. So we ask people to do usually three acts of kindness that you don't normally do on one day a week for a few weeks. So let's say every Monday, like today is Monday. So every Monday, do three acts of kindness that you don't normally do. And then do the same thing next Monday and so on. And then people become happier and they feel more connected. But we realize that both gratitude and, and, and kindness are really about connection. And when you engage in these pro-social interactions, you're really um, connecting with another person. And so we actually did a study to see, is it really the pro-social part, the kind part that makes people happier? Or is it the social part? Maybe you don't have to actually do an act of kindness. You can just talk to someone. And so we did a study where we actually um, – we had two groups and one group did three more kind acts every week for four weeks. And another group did three more social interactions every week for four weeks. So like three interactions that you don't normally have, extra three today. And we didn't find differences. So they – both groups felt equally sort of more connected, um, more positive emotions. So we think maybe what really matters is social interaction. It's so interesting it it sounds like you're saying we've been studying gratitude and kindness and what we realize is while those are two really important things in some ways we were dancing around the edges mm-hmm. of the issue mm-hmm. that yeah that might be now i think there's other things too i mean i think there might be multiple pathways right so i maybe connection is the strongest one but certainly there's other things that are going on with gratitude and kindness right so when you're kind to someone else not only are you connecting but you're also maybe you you feel like a, a better person, right? You you might feel just better about humanity as a whole. Uh, and then when you're grateful, um, you know, you also might feel like humbled because your success is not just about you. It's about other people. Um, you might feel inspired or elevated. So it's not just about connection, but maybe connection is, is the key. It's kind of the key magic ingredient. So is it possible that the common denominator among all three of them is that they all get you out of your own story? Mm, yes, I actually think that most – this is kind of my intuition. I'm not you know, a, a clinical psychologist. But I think that most or many problems that people have in their lives are due to too much self-focus and self-absorption. So whenever you're focused too much on yourself and it's often you're dwelling or ruminating – and I used to do research on rumination, which is kind of this obsessive thinking about, oh, what's about your problems? 
um, and yourself. And I think when, whatever can help you turn the focus off of you and to other people, which could be just distraction. I mean, it could even be just you're watching a play and you're really focused on it or you're working and you're really focused on your work. I think that uh, makes people less unhappy or less anxious, you know, less, um, less sad. Let me ask a question that may seem not entirely germane. I'm, I'm going to own that it's kind of a selfish question. Mm-hmm. I'm also going to own that many of my questions are going to be selfish. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but this is kind of selfish in a pretty – in a reasonably crass way in which that I'm writing a book kind of notionally at least about kindness. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about how to frame this mm-hmm. because one of the sort of obstacles I'm bumping into is that I think that men and women think differently about kindness. And that this is a lot of women I know, especially young women who are coming up in their careers, have said to me, well, kindness isn't my issue. I'm kind enough. I really need to worry about standing up for myself, which I actually think there's a there's a lot to that. Whereas some and this is I'm speaking broad, gross generalities here, but but a lot of the men I know much more resonate with the idea of, hey, yeah, if I I stop having such sharp elbows, maybe things will go better for me. And so the angle I've been vectoring toward is the getting out of your own head. Do you think that has unisex appeal or do you think that there are a lot of people who would say, you know, I, actually, I'm not totally self-obsessed. I, my whole jo- I'm a nurse or I'm a social worker or whatever. I, my whole job is about helping other people. Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a lot of different answers. So one is – and we have, a, we have a chapter that we wrote about how the pursuit of happiness might sometimes backfire. And one example we had is when you're – when you're asked, when you want to do acts of kindness, um, but you already are a very a caregiver, or you're already a very giving person, and then that's not the right fit for you. Then you don't want to just do even more of that. So you have to be careful. And everyone has different values and goals and jobs and personalities, and so they need to sort of choose the right kind of strategy for them. So for some people, they're already kind of so giving of themselves; they they shouldn't be even more giving to others. Although when I say acts of kindness, sometimes they're just very little things. I mean, it could just be you smile at the at the um, you know clerk that you that you see in a store, and you know you make them happier by that. So it's not like you have to; it's not a burden necessarily. Um, so that's one point: is that it really depends. On, and I think there probably is a gender difference. Uh, another point is that um, I think what being in your head might mean different things for different people or different genders. So it could be that you're self-absorbed because you're arrogant and you're just like, or you're narcissistic and you think about yourself a lot because you you're so great and you're entitled, or it could be that you're kind of dwelling on things. Oh, I don't know. I can't believe I said that to that person. And so it could be because of insecurity or it could be just because you're de- a little bit depressive and anxious. So so the, the the in your head could be due to different things. But all of those different reasons to be in your head, I think, uh, can be toxic. Um, now, obviously, I'm not saying we should never think about ourselves and dwell. And that's natural that that's – yeah. There's this great quote about how like each of us is the protagonist of our own little – you know, uh, play <laughs> like, and that's true. We're kind of going about the day and we're the protagonist. And so that's normal. Um, but I, I do think that no matter why people are too much in their own heads, uh, it's always sort of productive and valuable to get them a little bit out of their heads. Um, and this is not to say that some people are maybe perfectly fine and they're just, just the right amount. They're just balanced. I think I know people like that. Second point, um, we did a study, uh, recently it was just, it's just in press, uh, in journal of experimental psychology. Um, where we ask people to act more extroverted. And what's interesting about extroversion is it actually has three components. So one is um, sociable, talkative, and one is assertive, and one is basically energetic, spontaneous. Um, And we ask them to do all three things. 
And I think the assertive part is might be valuable for some people, maybe especially women, and that we were talking about women maybe being needing to sort of sort of take control of the situation more. Um, and that made everyone much really, really happy. Actually, we got the biggest effect sizes we've ever gotten, I think, in any experiment we've ever run. Or we ask people to act more extroverted. So say more about what the how how we can ex- be more extroverted. Yeah, yeah. What so the in this study, we, we we had people for one week. We just said act more extroverted. We didn't use the word extroverted. Before. By the way, were you studying con- – was this part of your connection research? Uh, I guess you could say that. Yeah, because I'm interested in social interaction. But it's 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 all it's all related. Um, okay, so for one week we asked people to act more extroverted, and for an, the second week or vice versa, we asked people to act more introverted. But we didn't use those terms because they have connotations, right? So um, for the extroversion week, we asked them to act more. Uh, we, we wanted to kind of make them a little bit even in terms of social desirability because in our in American culture, certainly extroversion is more highly valued. Um, so for the extroversion week, we asked people to act more assertive, sociable, I think, and or talkative. Yeah, because talkative can be bad or good. Talkative, assertive, and spontaneous. And for the introversion week, we asked people to act more, I think it was like reflective. Oh, gosh, I forgot. Introspective. Um, and, and then we gave examples. Um, and it's like sort of like we asked people to make plans. Like the next time I'm at lunch, I'll speak up more or, or I'll, I'll listen more. You know, I won't say as much. Um, and it was really incredible. So people who were asked to act more extroverted got much happier, much more positive emotions, like every variable we measured after that week. And the introversion week, they got less happy, including the introverts, because we expected the introverts would not really enjoy acting more extroverted. Um, and they might get fatigued. And you know, I read Susan Cain's really amazing book. I don't know if you've read Quiet. Quiet. Yeah, no, I haven't read it. It's, a, it's really a terrific book. And it gave me, actually, a lot of teachers say that it's really helped them understand their students because they're students who just don't ever speak in class, but they're truly listening um, and they're really taking it in. Um, I mean, my, my daughter, I'm very extroverted now. I used to be introverted. My daughter will sometimes. That can change? Yeah, yes. Well, sometimes. It, it changed for me, but with a lot of will. Um, but my daughter sometimes says, Mom, you talk so much, I can't think. <laughs> and she's just like listening and taking it in. But anyway, so. Um, so Susan Cain says that introverts, yeah, they 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 get fatigued, right? So like one of the symptoms of inter- of introversion is you you go to a party and afterward you're you might enjoy it, but you're just so tired and you need to recover for it. If you're an extrovert, you go to a party, you're energized by it. Um, so we expected the introverts in our study to sort of to get fatigued, and maybe it was too short; it was just a week. And if we did it for a month, they might get fatigued. And there's another study out of Melbourne that did find that introverts didn't benefit from doing from acting more extrovert introverted. Did not did not benefit as much. Um, so, but ours did, didn't find any differences, but when we asked people to act more extroverted for a week, we didn't ask them to act extroverted like 24 hours a day. I mean, they might, it might be for five minutes here, five minutes there. So it's very possible they, that it wasn't so, you know, burdensome and fatiguing for the introverts. But I think it's so fascinating that just increasing social interactions just, and there's some studies that show just talking to your barista at Starbucks or talking to strangers on a train. There's a great study from Nick Epley at University of Chicago where he found that people who take trains, I think he used people in Chicago who took, you know commuted by train every day, and he asked them, like, would you enjoy talking to a stranger on the train? They said, no, I would not enjoy that. And I certainly feel that way. I'm like, I would much rather work or whatever, read. But then he asked them, okay, I want you to, I don't know exactly what the instructions, I don't remember exactly the instructions, but you know, I want you to tomorrow to talk to a stranger on the train. And they did, and they got happier. Mm. So they didn't even realize that it would make them actually happier to connect. So even the small talk could work. I'm really interested in more of the deeper talk. It doesn't have to be revealing your deep secrets, but like really 
you know, kind of showing a little bit of yourself. Um, you know, uh, Harry Reese at University of Rochester, who I'm, who I'm collaborating with, has a theory that the key to relationships is to feel understood, valued, and cared for. Understood, valued, and cared for or loved. And I think it's just so impactful and powerful. And it like applies to many situations in any kind of relationship. Um, and what he describes is how do you get there? You have to have someone express something about themselves, which basically means self-disclosure. So I self-disclose. I told you about this party I went to. And then you respond in a way that makes me feel understood and respected or valued. And that's a connection. And then you, and then you have more moments of connection like that. And that can lead to a relationship. It can lead to chemistry. Uh, we're just uh, writing a paper right now about what creates chemistry. So, yeah, so that's a little bit of a deeper conversation. It's not just about the weather, about sports. What creates chemistry? Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, uh, <laughs> you think you were going to get away with no, that? No, I know. That's a, I know I, that's a, no, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated question because uh, well, I'll send you my paper, our paper. Um, we haven't... Uh, Why so, would I need to read the paper? Yeah, I have yeah, you. That's right. We haven't submitted yet, but basically it starts with these repeated moments of connection, right? So... There's person A and B. I disclose again. Disclosure doesn't have to be super secret or anything. It could just be my opinion about something, and then you and then you respond in a way that makes me feel understood, valued, and cared for. And then maybe you disclose something, and then we have sort of this connection, repeated moments of connection, and that leads to chemistry. And chemistry we propose has three components. The first component is a sense of kind of a shared identity that we have, that we feel like there's a similarity between us and a complementarity between us. And it could be a sense of sort of um, if it's a team, it's like a team spirit or it's a couple, it's a couple identity. And if it's friends or acquaintances, it's sort of just a sense of shared identity. So that's one component. Another component is basically positive affect and attraction. Positive affect, right? We, we feel, you know, so good talking to each other. Attraction in a broad sense. It could be actual like romantic attraction or it could just be, you know, attraction in a broad sense, like I like you. Um, and the third component is we are able to um, sort of uh, pursue goals together in a coordinated way. So this, there, the idea is that we can c- accomplish more together than we can apart. Um, and so the goals could be uh, to have a great conversation or it could be um, that we're writing a song together or we're writing a book together or we're working on something together uh, or we're trying to find a building together. Um, and somehow together we're like better off than apart. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know. Are there some people with whom I just never will have chemistry? Probably, yes. So somebody could express an opinion, and I don't have to be rude about it, but I find the opinion abhorrent, um, and and there of course. we go. Yeah, of course. And that's why we don't have chemistry with everyone we meet, right? So mm-hmm. just staying on extra, just looping back mm-hmm. again yeah. to ex, being an extrovert, for those or or – I guess more on point, having social connection. You started to talk a, lot, a little bit about it with trains. Mm-hmm. But for those of us who maybe don't take a train mm-hmm. and are intrigued by the growing body of science that mm-hmm. says social connection, mm-hmm. which, by the way, let's put some context on it, mm-hmm. is a uh, is under assault right now in the, in the era of you know tech-induced mm-hmm. atomization and political polarization and urbanization, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, all these forces mm-hmm. driving us apart. Mm-hmm. How can what are the little things or maybe big things we can do to increase our level of social mm-hmm. connection, especially given uh, the 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 data that suggests it really is key to happiness? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, that's a great question. Um, so Liz Dunn out of UBC um, did a study where where she was asking people to connect or to, to sort of chat with their barista in the coffee shop. So a lot of us 
even in an urban, you know, disconnected environment, might go to a coffee shop or a restaurant. Um, and even that kind of connection can work. I mean, I'll, I go to Whole Foods a lot uh, in my neighborhood in Santa Monica. And sometimes, like, the, the cashier will be so good at her job. Like, she'll be so fast. I really like people to go fast. And I'll just say, you are so good at your job. And, in, and I, I, I think it makes her day. You know, she's just, like, no one says that. Or I'll tell people that this is easier for women than men, but I'll, I'll see someone, I'll say, you are so beautiful. <laughs> and that's it, you know, and I go along. Or, I mean, that, it doesn't have to be like that. I mean, it could just be, hey, you know, and you, I mean, it could just be anything, you know. Um, oh, did you see that over there? Um, I think, you know, we, hopefully most of us at least interact with other people in some way in daily life. I actually started taking Uber Pool more often or Lyft Pool. Oh, wow. Pool I, that seems, that's a big lift. That's I, a big, I would have to really think about I that. know, but you know what? I always think, oh, I don't want to do that. But like um, we did it the other day with there are two different people. They're both really young, like in college or right after. And we like had this great conversation with both of them. It was just it was a friend of mine and I, like it was four of us. Um, that, that's happened to me a number of times. You have to be kind of in a right mood for that, I guess. Sometimes you just don't want to talk to anyone. How do you do when you get in? See, this is I read a study recently about chatting with people in elevators. Yeah. And this was a big challenge to my MO. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been able to do it sometimes, mm-hmm. but sometimes I just feel this lack of generosity of spirit kicking in. Mm-hmm. How do you do in elevators? I know. I think I have to be in the right mood. But you know what? If I, I could put you in a study or everyone listening to this can say, I can say to them, look, this week, three more times this week, do something like that that you wouldn't normally do. And it could be one time in an elevator, one time at a coffee shop. You know, I was, on a, I was at Pete's Coffee and someone was wearing like a cool shirt. And I said, oh, that's, I really like that shirt. And we had like a very, I mean, it was so easy. And it is, think of it as an act of kindness. Like you're, you know, you're making someone smile. Um, and it could be, what other, anyways, make it a, like a resolution. And then it gets easier the more you do it. Because I'm actually not a person, I'm extroverted, but I'm extroverted with kind of friends or people I know a little bit. And I used to, like my husband will just chat people up when we're just strangers. And I used to be like, why are you doing that? Like, stop, stop talking to people. <laughs> Uh, but now I'm doing it a little bit more myself because I realize, like, it's nice, you know. It really does make their day, and especially people who are serving you, you know, really talking to them. How are you? You know, they, they really, you know, you want to have people, people want to feel respected and appreciated for who they are. And you want, people want to be seen as a person and not just like as a valet uh, or as a, you know, waitress. Um, so, yeah, it's challenging. But I think like anything, the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Um, I, you know, I really think like you will be happier if you do that more. I've seen it. Mm-hmm. I've tried it. A l- I was trying it more after I read the study in the, mm-hmm. in the weeks after that. I've been, I think I've fallen yeah. off the wagon a little bit. I really, I, I resonate though with what you said about, I see myself in what you said about being extroverted. Mm-hmm. I'm extroverted with my friends. I, don't, I think my friends would say mm-hmm. I'm warm to them, but there are many instances, especially with people I mm-hmm. either I work with and don't know that well, or... Mm-hmm people I don't know at all, where I can feel the armor go up mm-hmm. with no provocation. Yeah. yeah. And that's okay. I mean, you, you don't have to write, you don't have to be connecting with every single person. That, yeah, and that's okay. And sometimes we just want to like be alone, but maybe just a little bit more than usual. You want to do it more. A um, couple more points. Um, so Liz Dunn, the reason that she did the study with the barista, or what's the male <laughs> barrister? <laughs> Wait, that's a lawyer. Um and, you know, now like Starbucks, Pete's, they have this, you can, you, they have these mobile apps now, right? Where you just get your coffee without ever talking to a barista. And, and her sort of her thought was, this is not a good thing because it's like, 
now we're not going to connect even with the person that we're going to like give our change to. Um, uh, so that's kind of interesting. In terms of social media, we are now also really interested in that question. You know, is the use of smartphones and social media or even listening to music where you can't like talk to people on the street. Like I'll, I'll sometimes I'll start, try to ask directions in New York because I, I, you know, I, I don't live here and I can't ask anyone for directions because they all have their headphones in yeah. and they can't even hear you. Uh, so we're actually doing some studies now, one big study trying to sort of discover sort of what are the effects on happiness and connection of people using or not using social media or just their smartphones. And there's lots of lots of hypotheses about that because certainly there are ways that people are finding to connect on social media, especially if you're shy or if you're living in a rural area and you're not, con- you know, you're not able to see your friends and family. We have au pairs from Germany mostly, and it's for amazing. Yeah, yeah, for our yeah. kids. So we've had au pairs because we have four kids. We've had au pairs since um, for 20 years, actually, literally for 20 years. And at first, you know, there wasn't really no internet, um, and they would miss their friends and family at home, and they would talk on the phone with them once in a while. But then we realized, like ten years ago, it didn't matter. Like they were connecting with their friends and family in Germany, like all the time, all day long. And so I don't know. They, they just they it wasn't a problem. Like homesickness, homesickness was just not as big of a problem anymore. So that's wonderful. Um, and and people who are really shy, you know, it's wonderful for some of them because they can connect better and easier over social media. And certainly, lots of people have started relationships over social media. Great for them, people they would never have otherwise met their husbands and wives. Um, but we also know that it's not often it's not real connection. And and it, what's interesting, it's like a so it's like a snacking. So it satisfies our need for connection just enough mm. that we don't maybe make the effort to like truly connect in person. Um, there was a great article in the Atlantic about the sex recession. Did you see that? No. Oh, it's fascinating. It was a cover story, and it was about how young people are having less sex now. Um, and partly because, I don't know, they're just on social media all the time and they're – maybe they're texting or sexting, but they don't actually get together in person, which, like, doesn't make sense to me at all. But, you know, that's supposedly a trend. I don't know what the data are really. So that's not good, right? So we're not connecting in person as much. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of research that needs to be done in this area. You know, like, can, how can we – can we use social media to connect? I think it's great to connect with someone and then make a plan to meet in person. Um, and I think that is happening. Um, but that's, I, I, I really think, you know, human beings were like, you can argue we're sort of evolutionarily hardwired to connect in person, right? Not obviously, obviously not to connect digitally. Um, you know, eye contact, touch, smell, uh, gesture is so important for connection. We obviously can't have that in, um, you know, when we're texting, although texting can also be like really fun and connecting. So we did, also did a study, um, where we looked at, how much people connected over different forms of media. So in-person, face-to-face versus like FaceTime, video chat versus phone versus social media, text, uh, web. Um, so I think that's it. And we found like this beautiful linear relationship. So the most connection was with, well, actually the three most was in-person, video, and phone. So actually video and phone were not distinguishable in terms of connection and positive emotion, which is really interesting. So I think maybe video and phone can can sort of approximate that in-person connection pretty well. But texting social media, you know, was a lot less connecting. Hmm. Not surprising. So just to button up this topic, mm-hmm. if if we have heard you, if we're convinced by what you're saying, the the move to boost our connection quotient would be to push ourselves out of our comfort zone a little bit. And is that it? Yeah, a little bit, and then maybe more. Um, 
And by the way, you can, let's say you're married and, you know, if you're married for a while, you're not necessarily connecting with your spouse all the time. Sometimes if you have kids and you have jobs, you might be barely speaking to each other. I mean, even if you're sort of happily married. And so you could also um, try to connect more with the closest people in your life. Um, Maybe really, and you know, when you talk to your spouse or your girlfriend or your best friend, like truly listen to them uh, or ask them questions that you maybe have forgotten to ask them. You know, maybe you sort of are taking them for granted. So it's not just about sort of connecting with strangers. Um, But yeah, I think at the very least, try to connect a little bit more than you are. And I think all of us can connect more. Like the extroversion study, it's interesting because we're we're doing another follow-up. And we're sort of thinking like, what if, like I'm a huge extrovert now. And and we're sort of, my students said, well, what if people are already really extroverted? Are they really going to want to be more extroverted? And so I, so we changed our instructions to be like, well, you know, like I'm an extrovert, but I'm not necessarily extrovert in every situation. And I'm not necessarily assertive. Like there might be situations that I wish I were more assertive in. And so you could always kind of be more sociable or spontaneous or energetic or assertive in some situations or with some people. And so we can all kind of use a little bit more of that. You know, I think we all can connect a little bit more. Even if you have, if you're happily married and you have lots of friends, you can, you could still benefit from more connection. And when you're connected, it's like you feel life is richer. You're just happier. And when you're happier, you know this, you're more productive at work. You're healthier. You have better relationships. You know, you're more creative. Like all kinds of good things come from being, of having more positive emotions. You're more generous to others. Um, so it's a it's a good thing. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Let me step all the way back for a second and ask the question I usually start with, but I just was going with the flow. Why did you, you, become so interested in happy? Mm-hmm. Three decades uh, of studying this, what drove you to, to it? It was serendipitous, actually. Um, so I, I started grad school, um, and the first day of grad school, this was at Stanford, uh, I met with my advisor. His name is Lee Ross, and I just saw him in Toronto. Wonderful advisor, and he, but his his um, expertise is in conflict and negotiation. So, you know, totally different. I mean, kind of the opposite to happiness. Um, but that first day we started, we walked around campus and I remember we went to the Rodez Sculpture Garden and he was telling me about what a great experiment, that a great experiment is like a, a great sculpture. Um, and we just started talking about like, what is happiness? And 
you know, how, you know, what's the secret to happiness and why are some people happier than others? And I don't know who, it was probably him. I mean, I don't remember who first asked the question. Um, and back then, this was in um, 1989, um, there was really only one person who was studying happiness, Ed Diener, who's really kind of the most- Ed Diener. Ed Diener mm-hmm. at Illinois. And he was really the, the founder of the, the science of happiness. Another wonderful person. Um, but, and he was sort of studying it at that point, you know, really correlationally kind of like, are you know, women happier than men? Are people who have more money happier than people who have less money? Um, and so we, you know, so we just were starting in this like total wild west. Like no one really knew, you know, we only knew very little. Um, actually I was kind of insecure at first about it because I felt that all my other grad student friends were doing like real science and I was just kind of exploring and it was all kind of fuzzy and seems like, seemed unscientific. But then with time, you know, we learn more and now happiness is this huge topic and lots of fields. There's economists studying happiness and neuroscientists studying happiness is become like you know a very serious field of you know inquiry. Did, was there anything in your personal background that made the subject resonate with you? Well, a little bit. So I'm from Russia. Uh, I was born in the Soviet Union, and I immigrated. I was almost ten when I came to the U.S. Where in Russia? So uh, Moscow. Moscow. And in Russia, uh, people, well, they report themselves as being less happy, but and they look less happy <laughs> if you're walking on the street, and they have a lot of reason to be less happy. Um, but when you go in their homes, I mean, they're drinking and having fun and they're really connecting. We actually did a study showing that they're just less likely to express happiness to strangers. And there's a notion of the evil eye and you're not really, you know, I don't know, supposed to express happiness sort of publicly. Dacha Uh, culture is really interesting in Russia. I spent a little bit of time there. People, even people who are middle class have a house in the woods and everybody goes there. You sit in a hot tub. I mean, it's not fancy. Uh, and drink vodka, and you're really connecting. You're making making little dumplings together. What are those called? Again? Yeah, uh, pilmeni. Yeah, yes, pilmeni. Okay. Yeah, I can't pronounce mm-hmm. it. Um, but there is this doing of stuff together that mm-hmm. that does seem very mm-hmm. families seem mm-hmm. tight. I, you know, I there's a cameraman I've worked with for a long time who who lives in Moscow, and I've uh, done a bunch of stories with him and Max, and uh, you know his he, him and. He and his adult children will get together at their dacha, which, again, not fancy. There is this connection embedded into the culture. Absolutely. absolutely. It's, a, it's a more of a collect- collectivist culture, I guess you would say. Um, but, you know, when I came to the U.S., one of the, you know, you know, I was like nine and a half. One of the first things I noticed is that people walk on the street and they smile at you. And if you go to uh, the bank, people will smile at you. Um, I mean, I remember getting stamps in Russia, like when I returned la- years later, and I didn't – my Russian wasn't as good and, and the woman was just yelling at me at the post office. <laughs> and I'm like, why are you yelling at me? I mean she was like really mad and she was angry and, and like – anyway, and, and that would not happen here. And I was just so amazed that people would just smile at you and they say – and they say, they'd say hi. Like why are they saying hi to me? So I was kind of fascinated by that. Um, and I think I'm a pretty happy person. I'm not like a 10 but I'm, I don't know, maybe an 8. Um, so I wasn't studying it because I wanted to be happier which is sometimes – like sometimes – Students want to work with me because they say they want to be happier, which is usually a red flag for me. You know, cause, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you could do that, but I really want someone who wants to do the science, and they don't. It's not just because they want to be happier personally, although you could do both um, effectively. Um, so yeah, I think I was already kind of interested. In, I mean, it's an interesting topic. I mean, most people find it interesting. So when I started talking to my advisor Lee about that, it just yeah, I mean, it just was interesting, and then it really took off. So for the first about ten years of my life, my career. We, I really compared happy and unhappy people, kind of to see how, how different they are. 
as a window into sort of what, what really is the secret to happiness. I also had a whole line of research with Susan Nolan Hooksom, another advisor I had who was wonderful, uh, on rumination, which is kind of the, the flip side of the coin, but it's because it's really about sadness and depression. People who are depressed are more likely to ruminate. Women are more likely to ruminate. But it also gave me a lot of insights uh, into happiness too. And then 10 years after that, the media kept calling me and they would ask me, I still remember this, I did a, my dissertation was about social comparison. And I found that Happier the enemy people, of happiness. Yeah. So I found that happier people are less likely – well, it's not that they're less likely to compare because we all can't help but compare, right? It's just out there. We can see other people are more beautiful than us or make more money or whatever. But they just don't care as much. They're just – they don't focus on it. They don't dwell on it. They use their own standards more to – you know, for their own success or whatever they want in life. But the unhappy people are like dwelling on it. And so – that's what I found. And, and so journalists would call me and they'd say, well, what does this mean? Like, what should I tell my readers? Should, ever, should we compare less? And I would say, well, first of all, that's a very applied question. I don't know. And I'd say, I don't know the answer because that's a correlation. What I found was a correlation. And just because happier people are less likely to compare themselves with others or don't care as much doesn't mean that if you're unhappy and if you did that, that you would also get happier, right? Because, you know, uh, correlation does not imply causation. We know that. Um, but then I realized like, wow, that's actually a really interesting question. Yes, it's kind of applied, but it's also really – What do you mean by applied? Applied meaning I want – I was a basic science researcher, right? And I didn't really want to study like how to make people happy because that sounded like – I don't know. It, it didn't sound like basic science. But then I realized this, that's, that's false. It is basic science. You know, studying how happiness can shift over time, how it can go up and down. I mean that is interesting research question, scientific question. But it's also applied in that it has like very clear implications for the average person, for you. Um, so then my students and I started doing, you know, what we call interventions and try to get people to to be happier. We actually never did the study where we asked people to compare less to others. So we probably – 20 years later, we should probably do that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it was it was serendipitous, as I said, how we started doing – Research for happiness, but but like it led to so many questions because as I said at the beginning there were so few people studying it, and then positive the field of positive positive psychology was born, and I was at that one of the initial meetings with Marty Seligman and Mike Csikszentmihalyi, um, and we were, we all so I connected. I should just tell people who those are. Marty oh. Seligman is the founder of known as the founder of positive psychology. He was at you you Penn. He's at Penn. Penn, yes. um, and then Csikszentmihalyi. I can never pronounce his That's name. That's right. Mike, you called him Mike. I thought it was Michaeli or something. Michal, yeah, but Mike is what, yeah. Okay. He wrote a book called Flow. Right. So he's written, yeah, lots of books, but he's famous for writing about flow, which I think actually is a really beautiful concept, you know, where you're really so absorbed in what you're doing that you don't even notice the passage of time and in the sense of self. Um, but the two of them really started this field. But what, what was great about that is that they, they, they had all these meetings. So we would meet in Acumal, Mexico, which is near Cancun, well, near, um, kind of two hours from Cancun in this like beautiful like little uh, place. And we would sit under palapas and talk about, you know, happiness. And so but the best thing about those meetings is that we connected with other sort of younger people in the field. So Barb Fredrickson, for example. Ah, I'm reading her book right now. She wrote a book called Love 2.0. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah. So she's become a good friend and collaborator. Um, so I, I connected she's with She's listening. Her. I want you on the show. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah she's, I'll, I'll, I'll ask her to be on the show. So she's at UNC Chapel Hill, and I'm going to see her actually next week. We're going to meet at the Vatican for, for some meetings about happiness. Um, so Barb Fredrickson, Ken Sheldon, who's at Missouri, 
who um, actually he wrote a book called Optimal Human Being, and he's wonderful too. So he became a collaborator. So, you know, wonderful people that I met there. And so we started collaborating together. And so there's all this synergy. And so this field was born. Um, and so now tons of people are, are, are studying not just happiness, but, you know, gratitude. Dacher Keltner also from Berkeley, yes, who studies gratitude and awe. Yeah, but he also studies kindness. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So he was there. Um, and so it's just wonderful that now we all kind of know each other. We work together or we talk to each other about ideas. We see each other at conferences. Um, so that's really important, you know, because that's how sort of the field is created. Um, I don't actually like the term positive psychology. You know, I don't know. I think it's it, it, it implies that the rest of psychology is negative. Um, but so I just use well-being science or gratitude science or, you know, what you're working Not on. happiness science. I mean, you could call it happiness science. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Foundational question. What is happiness? Okay. I use Ediner's definition of happiness. I think a lot of people do. And the idea is that the happiness has two components. And I think the best way of thinking about it is that you can be happy in your life and you can be happy with your life. Okay. To be happy in your life is basically to experience positive emotions on a regular basis. By positive emotions, I mean joy, tranquility, enthusiasm, curiosity, affection, pride, etc. Doesn't mean you experience them all the time. Negative emotions in particular circumstances are important also. To, you know, Sometimes when you see injustice in the world, you need to be angry and that will prompt you to change things. And that happens a lot these days. So, um, so but positive emotions is the being happy in your life. Being happy with your life is life satisfaction. It's sort of the sense that your life is good, that you're progressing towards your life goals. And I think you really need both of those components to be a truly happy person. There's two big questions I want to ask. I'll throw them both at you, and then you, we can decide together what the order is. How would you sum up what you've learned in these 30 years? What are the primary learnings? And then the other question I wanted to ask, and you can take them in whatever order you want, is how good are you at applying your own advice mm -hmm. or learning? Okay, I'll start with the first one. And that, that is a ridiculous question to ask because it would take me like three hours, six hours to answer. But <laughs> um, We got plenty of time. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> Um, the next party, you know, we could go and talk about happiness for six hours. Um, you're invited. Um, okay. What have I learned? Well, as I said, I, the more I do research on happiness, the more I think it's about connection. It's all about connection. Um, what have I learned in the last 30 years? Um, and that it takes, okay, it takes effort to become happier. Do you so, think most people are putting that effort in, are thinking, I know, I think the common, the Buddhists often say the common denominator among all living beings is we all want to be happy. Uh, and yet, mm -hmm. do you think most people are actually thinking about how to become mm -hmm. happy? No. And some people don't want to be happier for various reasons. Sometimes they just feel like they see the world, sometimes they just feel like they see the world as it truly is, and they don't want to, which, and they don't want to see it with rose-colored glasses. You know, that's fine. Like, I don't want to, you know, I'm not like forcing people to become happier. So I know plenty of people who are like, I'm fine with the way I am and I don't want to become happier. That's fine. Um, but lots of people, I say the majority want to become happier. But just like anything, right? If you want to lose weight, be healthy, it takes effort. And it's not like you can go on a diet for two weeks and you're done for the rest of your life. You have to watch what you eat and how you move and exercise your whole life. Every week of your whole life, you need to be thinking about it. But ideally, it becomes a habit and you enjoy it. Um, same thing with happiness. Or, or if you want to have a strong marriage, if you want to raise happy and successful children, it's a lifelong kind of thing, pursuit. And the same thing with happiness. And 
And some people do it, definitely. And sometimes we kind of fall off the wagon. I certainly know lots of people, they try to be grateful and then they're like, they get busy, you know, and they stop. Um, I'm not, again, I don't want to force people to do that. But if you want to do it, it, it takes work, it takes effort. But the, ideally that work is not like, it's a, not a bad kind of work. It's actually very rewarding kind of work. And you can also make other people happy. And that's another way to think about it, that happiness is not selfish. When you're happier, you make your 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 partner happier, you make your friends and your colleagues happier. I mean, you're going to be a better, nicer, more productive person, a, a more generous person. Um, so you're not just doing it for yourself. You're doing it for the people around you. I think that's one good way of thinking about it. So that's one take-home message. Effort. Yeah, effort. It takes work. Another one is that it's different for everyone. There are lots – There, I mean, I've become a personality psychologist with time, not just a social psychologist as I started – Personality psychologists are interested in individual differences. Everyone is different. Not every happiness strategy is going to be right for everyone. And my first book, The How of Happiness, that was one of its main themes, is the theme of fit. Because a lot of books will kind of say it's going to be about one thing. Like you need to do this to become happier. So gratitude. Gratitude is amazing. And I think it's very happiness inducing, although it, it can backfire at sometimes. I just had an interview with, with someone about that, uh, about Thanksgiving and how it's not always good to sort of force people to be grateful. Um, but it doesn't work for everyone. Like I actually find gratitude kind of hokey and I, and I don't like counting my blessings. I do like to sort of e- write an email once in a while to someone who I care about and really express gratitude to them. So we might express gratitude very differently. Um, and some people just don't want to do that. And that's fine. So we – Different kind of things work for different people. So I don't want to kind of for, you know, I don't want to suggest the same strategy for everyone. So the second theme is really fit. Before we go to the third theme, mm-hmm. I'm going to force you to go down the tangent that you already started. Why is it that gratitude can backfire? Sure. And by the way, I have a, an interest in how the pursuit of happiness can backfire. Like we already talked about how kindness can backfire, like if you're already a caring person. Mm-hmm. So gratitude can backfire when it makes you feel indebted. So it's it's very, very common when you express gratitude to people in your life, which is, by the way, what mostly gratitude is about. Sometimes we express gratitude for our health or opportunities, et cetera, but mostly it's about people. It might make you feel indebted because you feel like you haven't really paid them back. Maybe you haven't really expressed the gratitude the way you should have. In some languages, the word grateful and the word indebted are the same word, oh. which really is telling. And so, by the way, indebtedness is not a bad thing. I mean, it might feel unpleasant. But it can trigger sort of motivation, inspiration to sort of pay back, which is a good thing. Gratitude can also make you feel uncomfortable, embarrassed, ashamed. Maybe you're uncomfortable or embarrassed about sort of needing help in the first place. It might be awkward when you share it. You know, one of my students, Lisa Walsh, is doing a series of studies about the effects of expressing gratitude on that person, on the other person, um, because it could be. It can be awkward for the other person and there are cultural differences in some cultures it's we, we found, you know, it's kind of awkward to express gratitude. So sometimes it's – but I, I think those unpleasant feelings are not necessarily a bad thing. It also can humble you. Actually, this is really interesting. We have a line of research on humility. Um, when you are truly grateful for people in your life, it makes you feel like, you know, my success and my happiness is not just about me. It's about other people helping me, right? And that's humbling. Um, and in fact, we were listening a while ago to some like Oscar speeches and a lot of them are about that, right? It's like, and it's, and it's believable. Like you feel like, or oh, they really humbled to get this award. But I think some people are, they're like 
really, I could not have gotten it with like this team of people. I often don't buy a computer. <laughs> I've joked about this yeah, in the yeah. past. I, sometimes when people get up and say mm-hmm. I'm humbled mm-hmm. by this award, I'm like, yeah, you don't look humbled to me. <laughs> and that's probably true. But if, I think for some people, and it certainly is very believable that it could happen. Yes. If you're that kind yes. of person. Yes, yes, yes. Anyway, so gratitude can feel, sometimes it can feel unpleasant. And that's not necessarily a backfiring thing because it could then trigger you and inspire you and motivate you um, to do to do more and to be more generous yourself, to pay back. So, but any kind of strategy can backfire. Um, and I mean, that's true for anything. And so I'm just interested in that. Like kindness can backfire because it might make the other person feel uh, like they're needy, you know, or vulnerable. In fact, often there's some research by Niall Bolger at, at Columbia about um, visible versus invisible social support. So when social support, which is basically helping others, when it's visible, sometimes it could be really, it can backfire. It can make, you can make people feel sort of patronized, like, here, let me help you. But if, when it's invisible, it can actually work better. It's like you're helping people without like making it, um, you know, making it really obvious or standard. Right, right. That's very interesting. That's really interesting. Uh, I'm just, I'm processing how that may or may not play out in my own life. Uh like I'm thinking about my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my dad's had some health problems recently, and my brother and I have been very active in sort of just supporting our mom, mm-hmm. and we're not doing it invisibly. I, mean, I think it would be impossible to do it mm-hmm. invisibly. And she's just repeatedly sa- thanking us all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I could see a world in which she could start to feel like we're infantilizing her or right. something like that. Right. Uh, so yeah, it's just that. That's kind of that. That seems like a very important balance to keep. I in really mind. think it is. I think it's a really in- important uh, research finding. I-, I wonder if kids and parents are one of the exceptions. Like, if my kids were helping me a lot, I think I would just feel so wonderful about that. Um, but maybe not. Uh, maybe not always. But yeah, you could help sometimes in a way where, like, the person doesn't even know that you yes, do something, yes, right? Right. Of course, then you wouldn't get the credit. Well, yes, but <laughs> if you're a good person, right? It, um, you wouldn't care, but it's very hard not to. But, you know, if you're, let's say you're helping in lots of ways, but, you know, t- two of the ten ways are invisible. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that could be uh, a resolution we could all make. Like do something this week where you're helping someone and they don't, they don't know, know it. And that you will feel really good about yourself. I, I just – I'm an N of one here, but I, I have noticed in the – I, I've noticed my, my mother will be quite effusive in thanking me. And sometimes it kind of takes me back. Because I don't experience it as a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. You know, my mother and both and my father were wonderful parents. Mm-hmm. I love my parents. Mm-hmm. And giving back to them actually is invigorating. Mm-hmm. And yeah, sometimes it's another thing on my to-do list. Mm-hmm. But Or if I have to hop on the phone to talk mm-hmm. to my mother for an hour about mm-hmm. various things. And then she's very thankful at the end. I was like, oh, wow, I just had an f- hour on the phone with my mm-hmm. mom. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Yeah, uh, I, I, even when I'm doing things that I know she's not going to know about, it still feels good in some way. Of course, of course it does. Now, not everyone is lucky to have the kind of relationship with their parents that no, you have. No, I know that. I know, and for a lot of people, that. it really is very burdensome, mm-hmm. you know, or friends or, you know, partners. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll be a better person if you if you get something out of helping people without any credit. And you have, I've heard countless stories about people countless i've heard mm-hmm. stories about people who've had difficult relationships with their parents mm-hmm. and then they have to help them in their hour of need maybe some it may be the 11th hour mm-hmm. uh where the relationship can switch 
Mm-hmm. There's an expression uh, that I've mentioned on the show before that I heard on uh, a different podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ezra Klein has mm-hmm. a podcast that mm-hmm. I think is really excellent. Mm-hmm. And he had this woman on Allison Gopnik, I think yeah, her name. Her. Okay. Um, I've never met her. Allison, you're also invited on the mm-hmm. show. And she said something that has really been reverberating through my mm-hmm. skull recently, mm-hmm. which is you don't care mm-hmm. because you love. You love because you care. And it is the exercise, mm-hmm. the practice of caring for somebody mm-hmm. that generates the love. And, you know, I've always loved my parents, mm-hmm. but I even in this time mm-hmm. when, you know, the tables are turning and I'm a little bit more in loco parentis, mm-hmm. I find there's mm-hmm. there's uh, more love there mm-hmm. in some ways. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. You should write about that in your book. You're going to write about it? I think so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's... Um, there's a, re- there's a theory, an old theory in social psychology called self-perception theory. And it's when you, you sort of you see yourself doing something and you make an attribution and explanation. You have to explain it. And so like, look, you see yourself helping this person. And so you kind of conclude, well, I must really care about them or I must love them. Like, because why, you know, so like the behavior comes first and the emotion comes later. Um, so that's what this reminds me of. And but yeah, you, you can make anything a habit, I think. And so you first start doing it, and first it's, maybe it's unnatural, and then it, like just like extroversion, right? You might act more extroverted, and it feels very natural, um, but then with time it becomes more natural. So you we, and and it all comes back to, and this is I think uh, I'm le- leading up the question here. Mm-hmm. You have said before it all comes back to connection, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering whether, as I posited gingerly earlier whether in fact the level deeper than connection still is getting out of your own head Mm -hmm. whether that you know the the source of so much of our suffering is this Mm -hmm. rumination that you have studied you studied for a decade and connection does that right right i mean that's a great question and i would i'm i'm going to do i'm going to try to do some experiments to try to disentangle those things like for example we could compare one group can connect with others and another group might just be very, be very distracted. So, for example, video games get you out of your own head, and we make they make a lot of people happier. We actually just found it was not it was just a point two correlation, but the more college students spent on gaming apps, the happier they were. Huh. I mean, it wasn't significant because we hadn't it was point two, but it, we didn't have enough people in the study. So you can compare something like that, or even just focusing on work. So it's not connecting to others, but it's getting yourself out of your head because you're really focusing on something else. And I don't think it's going to be as enduring because the thing about connection is that it's enduring and it produces these upward spirals, right? So you connect and then you feel like you care about them more and that would lead you to the next moment of connection and it can create you know, lots of sort of positive benefits over time, like downstream effects, mm-hmm. whereas, whereas just sort of pure distraction or absorption in something may not do that. Well, this is so interesting. Maybe it's a double helix, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah. self-reinforcing yeah. upward spiral, yeah. but, but um, I, I'm – thinking of meditation. Mm-hmm. So in meditation, gradually we learn to focus on something that isn't our story. Mm-hmm. It's usually the feeling of your breath coming in and going out or mm-hmm. any sensory object that's arising. And there are many ways mm-hmm. in which this makes us happy. Mm-hmm. But I think a foundational way is in that you're, you're no longer taking your inner dialogue so seriously. Mm-hmm. And that has something to do in the moment mm-hmm. with connection. Right. And yet it makes you happier. Yeah, yeah. So that's a great comparison. But but loving kindness meditation, which is maybe maybe the, more, the most powerful one, I'm not sure if – I think some people have tried to compare. That really is – you're trying to connect 
to another, you know, others sort of in your mind. Yes. So I think that's even more powerful. But that would be a great comparison. So you have trying to connect with other person, other people actually in person, you know, meditation, gaming, you know, work. I mean, th- those would be great to compare with. Maybe it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, maybe this is truly yeah. academic, yeah. but uh, these two th- things mm-hmm. seem super important. Mm-hmm. We are wired for social connection, as I've said many times, or, and I've ripped this off from somebody. Mm-hmm. A lonely human on the savannah back in the day was a dead human. Mm-hmm. So we, of course, need – it's deep in our wiring to have the social connection. And we know, mm-hmm. and you know better than anybody, just having studied it so mm-hmm. long, that rumination mm-hmm. is makes mm-hmm. us unhappy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these two things mm-hmm. seem somewhere near the core. I don't know yeah. which one is above the other. I agree. So we were taking through the lists of – I asked you this ridiculous question of what are the things you learn yeah. after 30 years of right. doing this work. I did this dumb thing of, as I mentioned to you before we started rolling here, um, uh, Grace uh, Livingston, one of the producers on the mm-hmm. show, wrote me – compiled for me this great research pack mm-hmm. on you. And I took all these notes on it, circled all these mm-hmm. things, and then I left it in my office and didn't bring it here. But I, if my memory serves, mm-hmm. one of the other big learnings mm-hmm. – was something about savoring positive experiences? Mm-hmm. Well, there's, there's, yeah, there, th- that's one of the strategies. So there's actually ten or twelve or twenty strategies that we can use to be happy. And I focused today on gratitude and kindness and connection. Uh, but savoring—that's actually not about connection. Um, truly living in the moment and and savoring is basically extracting the maximum positive emotion from an experience. Now we can't all we can't live in the moment all the time. In fact, studies show that we're most people are more future-oriented, and I think that's appropriate. We're kind of focusing on what we're going to do next and our goals in life. But I think it's really great to also be sometime when we are, when I'm talking to you or when I'm with my kids or when I'm watching a movie that I'm really in the present, I'm really savoring that or I'm eating a croissant. You know, I'm really savoring that and enjoying it and not thinking what I have to do next. Um, and I think that will definitely, that definitely maximizes happiness. But we have to have a balance. Uh, I mean, there's a study that showed, for example, that, that people who are homeless are, are com- almost completely living in the moment. And that's actually adaptive for them. Um, but it's not, obviously, that's not going to be adaptive for everyone. Yeah, it's probably because they're under an enormous amount of stress. Exactly. Yes. And they if have I'm to, a gazelle, I'm living They're in living every, from one yeah. moment to the next, so they have to be present-focused. Yes. Um, so we can't do that all the time. But but when we are, and I and I realized this actually when I was, and this is relating to your last question, I think about, you know, whether I'm happy or how I relate the research to my own life. I realized when I was writing The How of Happiness, and I was literally, every chapter I would write, I would think because I spent so much time, it was like this deep dive into forgiveness, into kindness, into gratitude, into savoring, into rumination. Um, I would start thinking about my own life. It was kind of funny, like the kindness chapter. I'm like, I should do more acts of kindness for my husband. And I literally started doing that. I'd like bring him something from, you know, from the store, just a special something, you know, things like that. Or like, I don't take out the trash. I don't usually do that, but that's his, you know, kind of his job. But uh, with savoring, I, I noticed that was when I had two little kids. My my, the, my I have two kids in college now. They were little, and then I have two other kids. Um, uh, don't ask. But um, uh, so they were uh, like four and six, five and seven. And I remember thinking, like when I was with them, I was thinking, like, oh, I have to have take them to the orthodontist tomorrow, or I have to, you know, I was thinking about what I have to do next. So I wasn't really savoring, like I wasn't really living in the moment with them. And I remember thinking, like, that's ridiculous. Like when I'm with them, I should just be all in. Um, and then, you know, I could go do the other thing I need to do. Um, and so it really made me realize how important it is. And I, and I've tried to do that more. Like when you're, you're walking from, uh, you know, your office, from your whatever 
your home to office or the subway stop to your to your house and you um you know you truly are savoring you know maybe you're savoring the architecture or that bird song or the flowers or or the music um you know why not you know and standing in line you know standing in line hey you know what you can connect to the person standing next to you i don't usually do that but sometimes i do or you could just feel your feet on the ground yeah. or listen to the sounds exactly or... So do you engage in rumination around falling short at times? Falling short? Yeah, in oh. terms of like, ah, here, I'm this happiness evangelist. I'm the expert, but well, I'm having a crappy day. Well, I certainly ruminate, uh, not necessarily about that I'm not happy enough, but just, you know, about things that happen. Like some conversation I had with someone, oh, no, like that didn't go well or something at work or, you know, uh, yeah, my, my family. You know, there's always things like right now, you know, there's a fire next to my, you know, near our our city and the, the schools i just found out this morning the school's closed you know so i'm like thinking about that and so I, I definitely ruminate about things um uh yeah and i and i think that's fine like sometimes we have to kind of think about things the problem with rumination is that it's going in circles it's like you're going from a to b back to a to b you're not problem solving not getting any insight so you have to go from rumination to problem solving okay what do i need to do next not just like oh my god this is so bad this is bad this is bad or like, oh my God, this means that person really doesn't like me, you know. Um, so I'm pretty good at stopping that, but so, of course I, I do that. I think I think most people do that at least once in a while, and some people ruminate a lot. Uh, as you said earlier, we could talk for six or seven hours, mm -hmm. which actually sounds really fun. Um, <laughs> but for this conversation, is there something that I should have asked you but didn't? I'm wondering if there's another take-home message that I wanted to tell you about. I mean, not really. There's lots of we actually covered lots of my certainly my recent interests. I think we covered really a lot of ground. Yeah, it's really been great talking to you. It's really yeah, fun talking to you, especially yeah. um, I'm, I'm so impressed given that you uh, you you had it, you exerted yourself quite a bit over the weekend and, and you're in good form But today. I feel like we really connected. Yes, yes. that is true. Yeah, yeah. So in closing, mm -hmm. can you plug everything that uh, if people want to do a deep dive on you, can you just mm -hmm. plug all your books, web, web presence, sure. et cetera, et cetera? Wonderful, yeah. So um, I have two books. I'm trying to work on a third one, but that's going to be a while. Um, and they're The How of Happiness, about how to become happier, um, and then The Myths of Happiness. And that's about some misconceptions people have about happiness. I think that's better to read second. Um, and if you're interested in everything I do, including my academic research um, and my media stuff and interviews, um, I, my website is sonialubomirsky.com. Now, that's kind of a hard um, name to oh, – and also Dr. dot something well, whatever we'll yeah. put it in the put show notes in, put it in. yeah yeah um so uh and and i'm a professor at uc riverside um so the easiest way to find me and find my email actually i love to get emails for people and I, I i do respond sometimes very briefly but i do respond um it's just go to the website for university of california riverside psychology faculty and i'll meet i'm there so it's easy to find me wow you are, you're okay answering emails yeah i mean i'm just i, I answer every email but i often answer very briefly Okay, mm -hmm. I don't answer emails. Go for it. I'm, Try I'm, it. I'm we'll a better person than you are. Yes. Well, no, that no, that no. we that we should. But that, I don't we answer. But that. I don't answer phone messages from strangers. So only Interesting. emails. Yeah. Okay. Uh, such a pleasure to sit and talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to talk to you. As I said, I love that chat with Sonia. And if you want more from her, she's got some content up in our app. Uh, she's done um, some talks. If you go to the talk section of the app, and she's writing a piece for. The newsletter, which comes out on uh, the 10% weekly newsletter for which you should sign up 
and her her piece comes out on Sunday, February 9th. We've got some voicemails this week. If you, before we do them, I just want to tell you, if you want to call and leave your own voicemail, here's the number, 646-883-8326, 646-883-8326. Love the voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. Thanks for listening to my message. I come to meditation from a more scientific perspective, but I recently attended my first retreat that was definitely um, more from, on the spiritual side of things, and um, I appreciate your work because it seems to bridge those two worlds. And um, I actually ended up leaving the retreat early because I was having trouble reconciling some things, and as much as I wanted to go deeper into my practice, I also just got scared of the unknown um, and ended up leaving, so I'm still working through some of that. But something that came up on retreat that I hadn't experienced before is that while I was sitting, I just started rocking back and forth, and I it wasn't I couldn't control it. I could stop it if I wanted to, but it wasn't I wasn't doing it. It was just happening, um, and that's continued to happen in my practice since I've returned home. So I'm wondering if you could help me answer from a scientific stand- standpoint what the heck is going on with that. Thanks. Okay, so much in that question. It's a great question. Um, first of all, I can hear, I think, some sort of guilt, maybe some, I hope not, but maybe a little shame about having left the retreat early. I, I, To the best of my ability, I wish I could just surgically remove that from your mind. It's super brave to go on a retreat. They're hard, and um, maybe tough stuff came up for you, and you decided the best thing to do was leave. And so what? So you can go again or not. It's just like at the top of the show when I was referencing the fact that, you know, we're now into February and by now most of us have failed, quote unquote, at our resolutions. The quote unquote failure does not preclude you from starting again. And starting again is one of the one of the one of the most incredibly powerful life hacks. So so you you were super brave to go on retreat and you can always do it again if you are moved to do so. The rocking back and forth is very common. It happens to me. There's a word for it in the ancient language of Pali, reputed to have been spoken by the Buddha, and the word is P-T, P-I-T-I, and I think it translates into rapture, but it's uh, known to happen when a meditator gets concentrated, uh, when the chatter in the mind goes down and the meditator is, or a yogi is, getting better at staying focused on the object of meditation. Usually that's the feeling of breath coming in and going out, or it could be the, the phrases that we send in so-called loving-kindness meditation. As you get concentrated, the body and the mind can have all sorts of interesting reactions, and one of them is this sort of rocking back and forth that's sometimes accompanied by a body high. It can be sort of a rhythmic rocking back and forth, or it can be a little spasm of movement. Very, very, very common. I once talked about this with Joseph Goldstein. I've talked about it many times with Joseph Goldstein. And he has pointed out that it, some of us like um, this feeling of rocking back and forth, and we may be feeding it sort of unconsciously. Uh, so that's a, a thing to look for in meditation. And um, But in terms of the question you actually asked, which was what's the science behind this, I have no earthly idea. I don't know. There are so many things about meditation, and this kind of connects back to some – the top of your question, which is sort of the balance between the scientific and the spiritual. There are, as I've uh, sort of grown in my practice, I've retained my 
skepticism to, I think, a large extent. But I've become uh, sort of um, maybe embarrassingly open-minded about things. About and 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 I, it's really not that embarrassing. It's a more of a sort of open-minded, respectful agnosticism about things that I might have reflexively rejected heretofore. And things like PT just raise all sorts of questions. So why does that happen? I have no idea. Does that mean that I'm open to all sorts of unprovable metaphysical claims? Like, you know, if I say something mean right now, I'm going to be reincarnated as a goat? No. Am I slightly more open to those claims? Yeah, I'm a little bit more open, but I still, at my backstop is, you know, I'm I'm definitely not going to be pounding the table about claim, about about points where I don't have any evidence. So there was a lot there to their, their question, but I, one way that for you to look at PT and I hesitate to say this because it can feed the sort of striving mind of a type A meditator, but one way to look at PT or the rocking back and forth is a sign that actually your meditation is going well. The mind is concentrated, but I would advise you not to get too attached to it because things are always changing. All right. Great question. Keep up your practice. Try another retreat if you're feeling brave. Here's voicemail number two. What's up, Dan? This is Zach from Austin, Texas. I was wondering what you would think about uh, combining like a meditation retreat with a uh, rehabilitation, like 30-day rehab program, if you know if any of those exist, and uh, just your thoughts on it. Thanks. Bye. So I... Hesitate to say too much because I'm not, an, I've never been to rehab, um, and I don't know, I just don't know that much about the process. What I do know is that many of my friends who've been, and many people I've met uh, who've been, <clears throat> and this could be rehab for drugs and alcohol. I've also been to rehab centers for um, people who could have both addiction and also underlying psychological issues, and that sort of comorbidity is, as I understand it, quite common. Meditation, from what I can tell, is increasingly common in these contexts. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I'm thinking right now about the work of my friend Judd Brewer, Dr. Judson Brewer, who's at the at Brown University and has been from is an expert in addiction and for many years has been looking at the ways in which we can use mindfulness and meditation to um, not be so caught up in our desire to say smoke or use opioids. And he's had a lot of success in using this with patients. So I think I am I am really optimistic based on the evidence I've seen out in the world that, that this is a, a great combination. I don't know of anybody who's specifically running 30-day rehabs or 28-day rehabs and combining it with a meditation retreat, but I do think the the introduction of meditation and mindfulness into this context sounds extremely promising to me. Really appreciate the the call, Zach. Thank you. And I just want to remind everybody, we love your voicemails. So here's the number again, 646-883-8326. We'll put that in the show notes if you don't have a pen. Uh, before I go, just want to say a big thanks to all the people who work really hard to make this show a success. Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Lauren Hartzog, Tiffany Omahundro. Big thanks to all of you. Big thanks to everybody who's listening. And we'll see you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. 
I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.